Are, are we on in the room here? All right, that's awesome. What I've learned via a couple frantic text messages about half an hour ago is that my microphone was actually on on the live stream prior to starting uh, our worship gathering here. So, yeah, you're welcome, I guess. Um, uh, you know, so you might have heard in that some of those conversations and greetings. Uh, I think I talked about your weekend plans, Seth, Molly, Mitch. The world now knows what you're up to this weekend, and uh, knows probably too that I'm a little tired this morning because we had I think, millions of dollars of fireworks over our head. It seemed like all night long. So, for what it's worth, we're getting getting the energy back this morning. So anyway, if, if you're just joining us, uh, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here. It's really a pleasure to be with you. And uh, whether you're joining us here on the live stream in the RV on the great epic American road trip, we've got some of those folks out there. I love it. Uh, it's good to be together. And so instead of starting here, let's start far away, shall we? This week, I spent some time learning the story of an Iranian pastor serving in the rapidly growing underground church in the country of Iran. Uh, for discretion's sake, let's call her Aaliyah for a name. She first met Christ in a dream when the risen Lord came to her and said, follow me. But as a devout Muslim in a country where it is illegal to convert and worship, she wondered what she should do as there were not even Christians that she knew. Soon that changed, slowly, and she found a group of Christian brothers and sisters she could journey alongside and follow this, this Jesus and found life and healing and freedom for her soul and began to meet in an underground house church, these small groups of people who would meet to pray and worship and engage the scriptures in a land where Bibles are illegal to have and even harder to find. And eventually, she felt the calling to lead one of these house churches as their pastor. And inevitably, later on, it was raided by the Iranian secret police. So she quickly locked herself in another room and tried to frantically delete all of the Christian contacts in her phone. Because she knew what would happen to these folks if they were found out. Later on, after she had fled to safety, reflecting on the, the needs and the nature of being a Christian and leading a church in the nation of Iran, she said that, that she knew what she was signing up for. She took the invitation to follow Jesus, and that this Jesus doesn't play well with the powers of this world. Aaliyah and her brothers and sisters live like many Christians for much of history in much of the world have on the margins and keenly aware of what they're signing up for when they decide to follow Jesus who doesn't play well with the powers of this world. So before we dig more into that type of story, I want to say too that Marceau Bible Church, through uh, your generous joy box giving, uh, just this last week we were able to move into a partnership uh, with a local seminary, a local uh, ministry organization, and a number of local churches who are now going to be uh, providing long-term leadership, pastoral, and theological training for pastors in the underground church of Iran. So very, very cool. Um, yeah. 
bless the Lord that we get to partner so tangibly with churches and brothers and sisters around the world in such a different context than ours. And so I'm really excited to see what happens of this. There's more details that'll be coming out in the, in the months to come, so stay tuned. But um, really, really excited to be a part of that type of partnership and say, what can we learn as well from you in leading uh, the mission of Jesus in another part of the world? So back to the Apostles' Creed. We'll circle back around to Iran too, but we're in week number five, which I'm really tempted to say, hey, we're in the middle of the Apostles' Creed. We're not. It's the beginning. Uh, week five here, if you're just joining us, and we're in this series called We Believe, uh, because we're walking through the Apostles' Creed, this, this ancient document, these statements of core Christian convictions uh, that aren't simply like an I believe checklist. They're not simply like, I check this box, this, this, and this. Because some of these things are really tough to wrap our minds and hearts around. And so we say we believe and we say this in community because together I think we can hold these things. Even when some feel like a stretch for us individually. That together we can stand and affirm what the Christian church has rallied around for centuries. And, and will continue to. And I'm excited about that. So uh, we believe these things together. Now, we remember, though, this creed is not simply uh, a summary of all biblical uh, truths and texts and doctrinal statements. It's not. It's a very brief thing that we can begin to get in our minds and hearts to say, here are some core points that my heart and the church globally can rally around. And our phrase this week that we focus on includes one of two human characters that the creed offers us. Last week, we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this week at Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And I think these carriages, if nothing else, tell us that our participation in the story matters. Our interaction with the divine and the rest of humanity really matter. And so to take ourselves somewhat seriously as we enter into this conversation, we tackle... Um, the phrase, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And so I would invite you, as has been our custom for the past number of weeks, to stand. And we will say the words of the creed up until this point, and then I'll read our teaching text. So let's do this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. Hear these words from Matthew 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what's up with this phrase? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's some discrepancy. Pontius Pilate, Pontius, Pilate, Pilate. He may have been the founder of Pilates. <laughs> My wife told me not to tell that, but she's serving in kids' ministry. So anyway, uh, I won't demonstrate. You're welcome. So 
Pontius Pilate, who is this man and why is he in this creed? And what does it mean for us, for you and for me? He is a fascinating figure. I think a lot is going on, even in that, that quick response between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus' answer is so profound when you dig into it. And so there's a lot that we could pull out here. But I'm going to go over two simple things this morning. First is really on the surface. Pilate matters because he's historical. Pilate this is a smart, savvy guy. He knew how to play the game. He was the fifth governor of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, and roughly between 26 and 36 AD. Pilate's a well-known, historically documented figure. The ruler of the area when Jesus is born, uh, he was able to do it. He was probably the most wealthy man ever to walk the planet and also very politically savvy. He dies, divides his kingdom between his three sons. The one who's meant to rule Judea and keep the peace there lasts for like two years. And Rome says, we need to get this locked down. So we're bringing in Pilate. And so he lands there and he's, he knows what's going on. And there is relative peace in the land. And so we get this scene before Holy Week where Pilate begins to, to enter the biblical narrative where they're coming into Jerusalem, the holy city, for the festival of Passover. Pilate enters the city from the west, through the west gate of the city on a war horse with armies and weapons about the same time Jesus is entering Jerusalem for Passover through the East Gate on a donkey, palm branches with humility. And so the stage is set at this point and it's about to go down and Jesus is very aware that this is leading to his death. Not only because he's proclaiming a kingdom in the face of Rome and Caesar who would put up with no other kingdoms, but he's also poking at the corruption of the religious elite. Not the Jews wholesale, but these, these couple families who began to rule the Sanhedrin, these Sadducees, and he's poking at their corrupt religious power. And Jesus knows he's not getting out of there alive because when you do those things, you don't make it out alive because Jesus doesn't play well with the powers of this world. And so, straightforwardly, the reason Pilate gets into the creed is to, to be a historical marker. To, to give validity and historicity to the fact that Jesus was a real person and lived and died in Jerusalem at this particular point in history. That, that remember, the creed is trying to tell us that, that God fully God, fully human, incarnated in the person of Jesus in a way that's never been seen before in history is real and then is also naming some specific points along the way to fight some misconceptions about Jesus that sprung up over time. False teachings that we'll call heresies. So, it's time for your weekly heresy highlight. This week, as of last, like last, we are highlighting docetism. Now, what is that you may imagine? Or maybe you weren't around last week when we were talking about this. Docetism is the view that Jesus was actually not fully God and fully human. 
That in fact, he was fully God and just a divine spirit that appeared to be like a human. That never actually took on the trappings and limitations and nature and longings and desires and fears and hopes of a human being. Saying God was just playing a trick and appearing that way. And so this, this matters that they're calling Jesus a literal historical figure in the creed here. Because it says he was human and died. And the trick is, if it was just God, there would be no, if he was only God, appearing to be human, there would be no death, there would be no resurrection, no victory over the powers of sin and death. Just good feelings. And as much as I say this is a heresy from days gone by, it's, it's tempting to think that God is just far away, this, this spirit God who would like to give me good vibes and care from afar, as opposed to the, the God who was willing in the passion and mercy of Jesus to enter the human condition and suffer under the government, the religious leaders, and die because of love for humanity. That's a love that's upfront and fierce. So much so that it's hard to rationalize and hard to handle. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's worth highlighting that docetism is not just something that was far away, but something that's almost easier to give assent to for me at times as well. So, second primary reason Pilate is in the text. Why do we have this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate? I think it's included in the creed to remind Christians throughout time who it is that we are following and where this Jesus may lead us. We follow a, a suffering servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief is what Isaiah tells us. The one who in the preaching of the good news of the present and eternal kingdom where love and mercy reign and God is on the throne, not Caesar, not the corrupt religious establishment, this is not going to sit well. And so this part of the creed reminds us that the Jesus we follow did indeed suffer and die because Jesus does not sit well with the powers of this world. Here at Mars Hill, uh, our, if you walk out those doors, you're going to see our mission it starts with living out the way of Jesus. And so we, from the beginning, are claiming to be led where Jesus goes. And he goes to suffering and to death. Early last year, uh, I was sitting at home, like most of us, and I was reflecting as we were not gathering as a church body for a season. I thought about things like, is there going to be coffee again? Probably not going to do bagels with the shared knife again. I get that. And then, I, then I took off my pastor hat and I thought to myself, maybe this is an opportunity to reflect and take stock on the really practical, active ways in which faith is embodied in my family and in myself. It was one of those pandemic pauses that gave me a chance to do some introspection and prayer. 
it made me realize that as I walked through the events of a given week, the stories I tell my kids, the prayers my wife and I pray over dinner and at bedtime or in the morning, so often as I started to analyze those things, and I want to be gracious to myself and I want you to be gracious to yourself too, but in the midst of all of those things, I, I think was a, just a baptized niceness where I was encouraging my kids simply to be nice to other people and for the Lord to protect us and bless us. And as I began to see the language of my prayers and the conversations with my children and my neighbors, I wondered if I was, if I was off balance. I am off balance. This idea that Jesus is calling us to something other than than comfort, convenience, and protection does not sit well with me. My life is not oriented around that. Instead, I had, I had to think, am I, am I inviting our life as disciples of Jesus? Am I inviting my children in our small group? Am I inviting us into the radical love for all people? Are we modeling radical generosity and sacrificial hospitality, risk-taking, praying, say, Lord, would you tell us where to go? And would we really be willing to go? And would we really be willing to do where you are, what you are calling us to do next? Or simply a pleasantly baptized cultural Christianity of niceness? And God is so gracious with us and patient with us on the journey but I had to recognize that there is a lopsidedness to the practical outworking of my faith and work so often. And I don't think that's what we get in the scriptures. I look at texts like John 15, where Jesus says, they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10, persecutions are in this life, Jesus says, but in eternal life there will be life to come, in the age to come. And 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is saying, then he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to be all strong. I would rather stand on one leg of my faith comfortably then two in weakness and in challenge and trust. Living out the way of Jesus is not easy. It's not simple. And it's right for us to take stock of what it is we signed up for and who it is we signed up to follow. One of the, my favorite quotes of all the reading I did this week and the week before was from Kyle Lake, one of our pastors, who said, to follow Jesus in most of history and most of the world was to sign up for an uncomfortable and ostracized existence. And, and that hits me in our 21st century Western world for many of us as strange because I, I don't feel that often. 
we have to name that for those of us who live here in West Michigan, we live in maybe one of the kind of last uh, holdouts of cultural Christianity where it's not just okay, but sometimes advantageous to, to claim Christianity. Um, that's like going to Disney World for world history and saying, this is real. Um, but it is where we find ourselves. And so God is meeting us there. And so what do we do with that? It's easy to think, oh, I should just be out there somewhere else. No, God's called you here for a really good reason. And to the institutions and social groups and neighborhoods that we all belong to, that are even woven in the fabric of this, that, that pseudo-cultural Christianity, it really matters. So what do we do in the midst of that when we see the call to follow Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who suffered under Pilate unto death? I find this kind of cognitive dissonance that I don't know what to do with. Most likely it's just, I'll just, I'll just leave it alone. But I do think there's an invitation to us highlighted by this part of the Apostles' Creed that reminds us that, that following Jesus helps, we need to set our expectations properly. That the Bible isn't inviting us with great ways to win friends and influence people. The message of Jesus is good news for the poor, release for the captives, freedom for redemption for all people. We're met very sharply with intolerance from Rome and the religious establishment. It's helpful to note here too, when we talk about who killed Jesus. I think Rome plays a part. And it's easy to say the Jews killed Jesus. Now, most of the Jews loved Jesus, protected him, followed him. What we're talking about is a, a corrupt establishment uh, in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees you read about in Jerusalem, this kind of mafia-like group whose power and comfort and convenience and allegiance to Rome and money uh, and politics were really disrupted by Jesus, the man of the people who was saying, there's a different way, there's a different truth, there's a different, better way to live. And so it's important that we know th those were the folks with the power in this situation. And Jesus is coming and saying, I see through your power. And I'm calling people to live in a way that subscribes to a different power structure. So they're able to live in freedom and generosity and creativity in the middle of all this. And so we are reminded that the, the Christian is ill-fitted for the culture in many ways. And I think that's still true for us. We look back at Christian history in these first couple centuries when people are, are following Jesus in the early church. We see these martyrs, which is this term for those who are killed for their faith. And they are many. Even though Christianity comprises a pretty small percentage percentage of the Roman world up until about 315, 330 AD, but between 3,000 and 10,000 are publicly executed during that time. You get these stories like Perpetua and Felicity and Polycarp, which I just invite you to look into at another time, or if you want to dig more into this, you could join us at the Formation School. Applications are due August 1st. <laughs> I mean it to say, how then should we live? And so these, these people inspire us to say, how do I live an ill-fitted life? How do I live in such a way that points out that Jesus is not fitting properly with the power structures of our world? How do I live in such a way that the freedom offered in Christ opens up my life to a different realm of possibilities? For these early Christians who lost their lives because of following Jesus, the destroyer of the gods, as one Roman governor would say, 
The question for them was, how do we handle persecution and death and martyrdom? They'd ask that so seriously. And so I would ask us to say with even more seriousness, how do we ask the question to ourselves, how then do we live in light of the message and way of Jesus? What does that look like for you and I to take seriously the words of Jesus who says, in this world you will have trouble in John 16. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the question that rises up for us, brothers and sisters, is what does it look like for you and I to follow Jesus in a way where, where conviction and calling are found higher than comfort and convenience? Where the one we follow and where Christ leads us and calls us is higher value to us than how that works itself out in our society and family economy. This American dream, the Western dream, this, this thing that we go after, is, it's older than us. It's older than the incarnation of Jesus and Greece and Rome. This thing, this individual dream has its roots where the world is about me, my experience, my happiness, my enrichment, my comfort. And friends, I am so easily lulled to sleep by the pursuit of these things. Embarrassingly so. It's weird to think that my microphone was on for a while. It would be even more weird to think that there was eyes on all the decisions I make, socially, financially, all these things. Because I hear the siren song of comfort and convenience peace. And I respond to it in ways that are embarrassingly obvious, and maybe you do too, versus the, the voice of Jesus that says, come follow me. The creed reminds us who it is we are signing up to follow and where that Jesus leads us. And so when we answer the question, how then can we put calling and conviction, the following of Jesus above our convenience and comfort? When we answer that, what could be the fruit of our answer, friends? I think freedom and generosity. Freedom to say, I can be creative in following Jesus in my life. What could our life look like? if we are not afraid of what suffering and death might look like, if we are not afraid of the, the cultural, societal consequences of following the radical way of Jesus. And I think, too, generosity can be the fruit of hearing this call. If the, the thing that our hearts are oriented to the most is the work of the kingdom of God and the presence of the Spirit among us. How then do we, we spend time and resource and money and energy generously? This table doesn't run out. Keep showing up every week and this will keep happening because God, God's abundance is great. And so I, I think the creed is hearkening us to remember that while suffering and even unto death, we may follow Jesus. 
God meets us in God's abundance and love and provision. And so what does it look like as the Spirit works in the soil of your soul this morning and you think about people and calendars and jobs and finances, situations that would find you Monday or Tuesday? What does it look like for you to put your calling as a Jesus follower, the conviction of that love and mercy higher than comfort and convenience in your life? I think it changes the way I pray. I think it changes the way that I listen to God after or while I am praying. What kind of possibilities does that open up for our family, our life, career, finances? Are we open to that kind of calling? We'll end with this really cool story. I think back to Aaliyah, our Iranian pastor friend who has this dream. Immediately following our text in Matthew 27, this is verse 19, there's another woman who has a dream who doesn't yet know Jesus. Pilate is in this whole trial of Jesus trying to figure this thing out. And the text tells us that his wife sends Pilate a message. He's really busy. So this message, I'm guessing, is sent with much urgency. And Pilate's wife says to him, Do not have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. Tradition has it in the Eastern Church, specifically the Coptic and Ethiopian Church, that Pilate and his wife, because of this dream and what they saw in Jesus, began to be curious and find a relationship with Jesus. And over the next few years, as they watch Christianity grow, they realize that the faith and life they're finding in Jesus and the hope that they're finding there is not compatible with the power and trappings of Rome. And so the tradition of the church is that they left their post and, and moved south into Africa and are now venerated as saints in these traditions. That they, they left what they had to follow Jesus, knowing the risks, knowing the suffering, what would come. They leave this world of power and move to an entirely different place to follow Jesus. And I'm compelled. Who is this Jesus who calls even those who would participate in his death and suffering? To come into new life and new possibility. And so that's the Jesus that, that we serve. That's the one we preach about. That's the one who gives us the courage to say, Lord, how might I live in light of the calling that I have received and the suffering that you have put forward? Pilate leaves it all to follow Jesus. So even those who are set up as the villain are redeemed, oppressor, now voluntarily becomes oppressed because of the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, your mercy is so great. You're so patient with us. Spirit, would you stir in our hearts, bring to our minds the places where you are calling us possibly to the path of suffering or ostracization or difficulty or inconvenience. 
Would you allow us to repent to the places where we have clung to the easy way instead of your way? Would you give us the grace and the community around us to begin to shift and change? The mercy you extended to Pilate, would you extend it to us? Would you continue to surprise us with your goodness and mercy? As we take steps to follow you, Jesus, though in you who there is only abundance and healing and no fear. We're grateful for your love, God. Would you continue us, continue to point us in the way of your son Jesus as your beloved people? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.